0: My guest this week is an Emmy Award-winning writer, performer, teacher, and editor for the last 50 years. He was a writer and editor for the National Lampoon from 1972 to 1984 and writer of Lemmings, National Lampoon's musical, as well as most of the music from the National Lampoon Radio Hour. He later wrote on some of the most popular and acclaimed children's programming, such as Shining Time Station, Magic School Bus, and Between the Lions. It is an honor to talk to Mr. Sean Kelly. Hello, Sean. Good
1: morning. How are you? Good morning. the Lions was so promising. I really had I really had faith in that. And something went, ter- not terribly wrong, but something went wrong. Anyhow, it didn't it was going to be, you know, the successor to Sesame Street, which has, you know, lasted for fifty years. But uh, it just kind of went away, which was too bad, because it was fun. It was a fun project.
2: That's
0: where you, when you were Emmy, correct?
1: Yeah. I think that's what was The Kiss of Death. <laughs> i think it no i think part of the problem was with that one is that um the, the lions the little the puppets were uh hairy <laughs> and um somehow or another hairy uh dolls and toys and bedroom slippers and whatever that entire marketing thing that that children's television workshop can do, uh, didn't catch on. I mean, people, nobody wants, you know, the way Muppets are so sweet and fuzzy, they aren't hairy. Um, So, But maybe it was something else, maybe it was me. But uh, we only got two seasons, I think, out of the Alliance.
0: You were born in Canada. Yep. And from your work, you do a lot of, com- you did a lot of comics when you were growing up?
1: Oh, that's all I did, really. It was, it was, uh, I don't know why my, my parents were so uh, permissive about comics, uh, but yes, I was, um, I mean, I, I actually, of course, don't have any longer, but had the first, you know, uh, ba- um, Superman, Action Comics. I had. I uh, was devoted to Red Rider, for example. That was a comic book I couldn't get enough an of. And when I got to be a little older, Pogo became uh, a, a minor obsession. And uh, yeah, I just uh, comic books were all over the place. And as I say, my parents were not especially permissive. And that the comics were causing juvenile delinquency, you know, yeah. that was a, a given. But somehow, I—I uh, I, I, I guess my parents didn't know I was becoming a juvenile delinquent. See, I—I really liked comics very much.
0: Were there comedies that you w- listened to on the radio or watched on early television?
1: Uh, what? <laughs> on the radio every night. Uh, my family, my extended family, my grand folks and uh and things would gather around the radio in the parlor and listen to edgar bergen and charlie mccarthy and uh fred allen and uh i forget what else was it those were the big sunday night uh radio shows that we you know were devoted to um television arrived in uh in my world Uh, when I was 12, so I didn't have any appreciation for anything that was on there. And anyhow, half the television in Montreal was in French. Hmm. So, and and half of that was wrestling. But there was some kind of uh, goofy uh, little uh, show for kids. And on that show for kids, they had a goofy little quiz. Like, uh, you know, 10-year-olds wearing mortar boards and answering Easy questions, but um, my mother insisted that this was uh, this was something I should do. So for pretty much the better part of a year, um, I would uh, you know leave school on Friday afternoon and uh, toddle down to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation studios and ring a bell and answer questions like a little Pavlovian dog. So, so the thing about the the only reason I even think about that is that it 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 made television entirely unenchanting. Do you know what I mean? If when you realize that what's what it really looks like behind the scenes has nothing to do with what it looks like in front of the scenes, and that it's uh, just a bunch of people doing their best or not. So I've never, uh a lot of spent an awful lot of time in or around television. I've never found it um uh, that thing that you would like to have, you like to feel, which is, oh boy you know this is so great um uh, uh, which um uh, i remember when we i was on saturday night live very briefly as a writer and i part of the we contributed to my, I briefly it was the Gene Domanian years and the night before or the night of our first show, we're standing, Gene and I are standing in the wings and they're doing a countdown. And she says, isn't this exciting? And I said to her, I've been doing this since I was 12. Mm. And she looked at me like, oh, my God, does that mean you know something? Because I don't want anyone near me who knows something. And uh, <laughs> within a short period, I was uh, I was let go.
0: Okay, I was gonna ask you like two episodes. Did you get? Do you remember if you got anything on the first two shows? I don't
1: believe I did. I don't believe I did. Um, um, I, you know, when they occasionally I get like a a, a eleven cent royalty check (laughs) because I was actually on on the staff, and that was the year that Eddie Murphy sort of. Been been uh, be, become a, a huge star, but Gene was reluctant to use him for whatever reason. So um he, he would, <laughs> he and I didn't have to do a lot of work because he wasn't going to get into the sketches in my system.
0: Yeah, I talked to Larry Ornstein, Mel Green, and Neil Levy.
1: Oh, yeah. Who were all there uh, that season? All of them <laughs> were involved in that. Uh, Neil. Levy was was a very because he'd been around a bunch of the previous uh, shows, so he was acutely aware of what a bollocks this was.
3: Right.
1: Whereas um, a, a lot of the a lot of the new writers had were not especially experienced or didn't know why it was being so, why everything was so uh, bollocksed up. Um. But uh, but Neil did, yeah.
0: And I'm sure Brian Doyle and Murray did too.
1: Yes. Brian came in the week I was excised and um, uh, when he showed up I thought really are they are they that's great because you really know something and are funny and uh but then I never as I got to work with him because I was gone uh well I remember seeing him in his office and thinking this is great and then uh, I received my uh, my marching instructions. And I was, there were a couple of us, Peter Talber, Mitchell Kriegman, Leslie Fuller. We all got um, um, uh, sent to, to Coventry the same week. Uh, and Nancy
0: and so, Dowd left. Say what? And Nancy Dowd left.
1: I mean she's a really talented person. nobody knew what to do with her. It was, just, it, was, it, was it was absurd. Um, it was it was absurd. it was and i mean, I don't know if Jean Mannion's a nice person or not. I, she never but she had no idea what she was doing, and she was not smart enough to surround herself with people who did. Um, and that was a mistake on her part and she didn't obviously they didn't invite her back for another season and um she went off to uh to save uh 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 she, i think woody allen saved her from choking to death in uh yeah. <laughs> and
2: there
1: was a the, the post the next day had a picture of her and the headlines food choke woman <laughs> which I think is her, her, her Native American name
2: and how they uh, call
1: her that on the res
0: How did you get involved with the National uh,
1: well, the, the, the person who lived above us in the, in the flat in uh, down in the, uh, in the funky area of Montreal, was, a uh, 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 Michel Chacat. Now, he wasn't living there, he had it. but occasionally he would come back to, uh, Montreal, I guess, to visit his family and see if this, uh, tenant was, you know, lighting any fires. Anyhow, Michelle uh, uh, was part of something called Times Square 2, which was a, a comedy music act, and they were, they were, not enormously successful, but quite, quite successful. They did a lot of TV, and they did a lot of, you know, they were successful touring. But anyhow, they were winding down, the act was winding down. And, and um, so that I met Michel when he came to Montreal, and very shortly thereafter, he came back to Montreal and said that were these guys starting a magazine. And um, wouldn't it be great if uh, we we got we did some work for them? So it was you know absolute serendipity. I mean, I didn't audition, nor did they. I think for the first year or so, they thought Michelle was making me up because we shared you know we had shared credits on the work we did, but they, they only saw him because he was living in New York. Um, and I, I guess they thought it was something some weird. <laughs> Why well, have you invented co-author or whatever? But then, yeah, that that's how I got involved in the thing. And uh, it was that was uh, Bruce McCall uh, just published a book, his, his autobiography. It's very, very which is very good, because he's very good. But he has a chapter in it about his getting to the lampoon uh, and and how weird a weird scene it was um, when he was he was standing in this shabby waiting room. And then this strange looking guy comes out and says, hello, I'm Henry Beard. And Bruce thinks, I'm, where am I? How much going on? Um, so it, it just had me thinking about those uh, those days. He uh he uh, now Bruce went on to Saturday Night Live, but he was very, very, very unhappy there, um, because he's not a TV writer. Uh and never should have been or claimed to be. But then of course he found his uh his at the uh, New Yorker where he's been a, a, a star ever since, which is nice. For him. But uh, his thing of the, uh, of the early days at the Lampoon and the weirdness of it all is uh, is very touching. And then uh, someone, before I even saw his book, I mean, I, I knew he'd written a book, but someone emailed me, actually Janice Hurst, emailed me to say, you're going to love Bruce's book because of what he does to PJ. So um, that was what encouraged me for me uh, to uh, get my hands on the book. It really is. Bruce is a very gentle man. He's a gentleman and a gentleman. He apparently, I guess, PJ really got up his nose because he, he's vicious. Vicious to him. Um, yeah. So mm. there's
0: that. And uh, one of your most famous pieces was Canada, the retarded name to the north.
1: Yeah. <laughs> on your doorstep. Retarded giant on your doorstep. Mm. <laughs> more threatening than that, of course, now we wouldn't be able to say retarded, we'd say right. the giant who rides a short bus in your driveway or <laughs> something. But anyway, um Maddie Simmons, the the, the the publisher, uh it came to his attention that the magazine sold very well in Canada. And um I mean not as much but the the model of canada is per capita and so it's it's so better per capita in canada than in the united states so he said to me maybe we could do uh you know a regular feature um and so i did and then uh Michelle, Chiquette and Ann Beach and I cooperated on a on a Canadian the, the retarded giant thing, and then um, uh, Ted Mann came down from Vancouver and uh, did a lot of a lot of the, the invasion, of the American Canadian war. It was was Ted Mann's contribution to it all, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, And I'm sure it was true. I mean, it was demographically, I'm sure the magazine did uh, as well as there is a Canadian magazine. Oh, it has been for a very long time called Frank, which I don't think it has a wide circulation, but it's very, and there was another one called the Beaverton, which is an online magazine, but they're they're modeled on private eye. They're very in inside baseball. About Canadian politics, um, and that, that you know, that's not a subject that's going to get your uh, your bestsellers. Uh, uh, you're not going to get bestsellers out of the Canadian politics stories.
0: The, too many John Kritian jokes.
1: Yes. I mean, it's so, it's, the, Frank is hilarious, and uh, Beaverton, which I get online, is hilarious, but I can imagine, whereas the stuff, what we did with Canada, the retarded giant, what I think we did, was we, instead of the joke being on, uh, in Canada, the jokes are on newbies, you know, newbies are the, the Canadians of Canada. Uh, but it could be Hoosiers, it could be uh, Valley Girls, it could be you could get some demographic, and and uh, exploit the um, the whatever it is the uh, get out of the way, and coming up short and feeling bad about that. And uh, yeah, we also, I mean, I thought one of the things we got away with it which had one of the Canadian pieces, was we had a beautiful, beautiful look like, you know, calendar art of the Rocky Mountains and the magnificent horse and a pig in a Mountie suit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in Canada, that was so blasphemous. I mean, the idea of calling a Mountie a pig was, I think your place is still trembling, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because they're so big, big police after all and it was the 70s so um, whenever you saw a, a policeman you had to do some observation about do you smell bacon or right.
0: <clears throat> there's a line like in Canada up, up against the wall motherfucker was translated to...
1: something like uh, I, I, I beg to differ Right. I don't see it on those lines yeah yeah because uh because it's true yeah whether joe how do you know if a canadian has been in your apartment there's an extra quart of milk in the fridge (laughs) (laughs) so we just turned all of those joke forms into things about how polite and uh and pleasant uh and Aramas. Now, so uh, Bruce McCall um, uh, had his own take on it, which was sort of ca- ca- a lot of stuff about snow debaters and Canadian automobiles and, and meteors and how what you have an automobile, <laughs> you have a national automobile. That was, was pretty funny. And uh, Ted and I did the Bomber J. Uh, a Guide to Canadian Literature, uh, which have, you know, um, once a month we'd do a thing of of taking a famous Canadian writer that no one outside of Canada had ever heard of, and then award him or her a certain number of snowmobiles for their uh, for their literary prowess. And I just got not just, but pretty recently, got a note from a. A um, man in Canada named Brian Busby, who is like the leading scholar of Canadian literature. That's what he does for a living. Unbelievable. And he was writing, he said that he didn't know there was any such thing as Canadian literature until he saw the Bombardier hide in the National Lampoon. So I thought, that's, that wish, he wouldn't, uh, we, we, we weren't just wasting our time. That's always uh, a lovely thing when it happens and doesn't happen and i'm sure to people in in the movies and on television it happens a great really deal more but that thing where you think something you did uh actually had a positive effect out there in the real world i mm. thought that's kind of a nice that's a kind of a nice thing
0: Yeah. and then your love of comic books um you did the son of god comics
1: yeah that was michelle idea, and Michelle really insisted that it had to be Son or oh, Apostrophe God. It couldn't be, and I thought of course he was right, because that really indicates a kind of cheesiness. And uh, we, the great thing about Son of God, Conference is we had Neil Adams doing our, our art, and he's the, American, the acknowledged dean of, uh, of Batman. And I mean, Neil was is, is now I guess you Neil know, has retired and just sells his, his uh, uh, work online or something. But anyhow, he was and he was very cooperative because he was a big old um, uh, Irish Catholic, so he got the jokes. And uh, what what Michelle and I thought we were doing was making fun of uh, Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> we thought the Protestant idea of Jesus as a blonde uh, blue-eyed um, superhero was was absurd, and so we had uh, Jesus as this Neshi Jewish kid who um became this protestant superhero i mean it was a kind of a metaphysical joke but anyway the only people we wanted to offend <laughs> were protestants and the only people we offended were catholics so that was a, a slight utter of a misfire because it's such a it's such a when you think no i was doing a joke on your side <laughs> someone takes exception to it right. you know no, that was that was a joke about about Tr- uh, anyway, but, but it was fun, and yeah, it, was, it was fun. And then uh, I think well, I went on doing the ma- Michelle took off for Europe to put together his uh, outrageous history of the 60s book, uh, and so I was l- left to continue with Son God, but it wasn't nearly as much fun as it was with Michelle.
0: And then you had Bob Dylan in a comic book, Zimmerman.
1: Zimmerman, which also was, we got into trouble with that one, Tony, Tony Andrew and I would do the Zimmerman comics and we got into trouble because uh, there it was, it was, they said it was anti-semitic. There was a book called The New Anti-Semitism in which our Zimmerman comic was was highlighted and once again, you went, no, that it's not, that's not the joke. There's nobody, it doesn't, it's not, anyway. Uh, the idea of, of being singled out uh, for, for anti-Semitism when the, the, the whole joke about Zimmerman was that he was a folk singing superhero. I mean, that's, that's a funny premise. Anyway, uh, it was in those, you know, in the, now my son, uh, one of my sons has been a writer for years on uh, Bill Mar uh real time thing and like so much envy uh chris that he gets his feedback instantly right he writes a joke and mar does the joke and then the uh tweets and twitters and emails and stuff uh show up whereas at the lampoon you had to wait uh it was a month before the joke got published and another month before anybody could take exception to it, Chris gets uh, <laughs> accused of all kinds of shit uh, uh, immediately. He was, uh, he was telling me, this is like uh, in, uh, our family, a letter or a email, or a tweet, or, a or something to uh, HBO uh, saying that you have enough of liberals like Gore Vidal and Chris Kelly. And Chris, just to be mentioned, as out, he thought, I need not work anymore. I can just lie here and look at that letter and feel good about myself. Because <laughs> that's high praise indeed. Anyway, yeah, so uh, we we had, we it was always a delayed, a delayed, and so, and and Manny always believed that what sold the magazine was its cover, and what sold the cover was sex. And um, uh, you would think, well, I had to, I, yeah, I mean, I guess this sexy cover will sell, I guess, I don't know. But the sexier the covers got, the more the book was not displayed on the magazine rack and you had to, you know, ask for it at the counter. And um, so that wasn't, I think that backfired, that, that policy of, of basically being, mistaken for uh for a um, uh, porn magazine so I'm, a lot of things went wrong and that was perhaps one of the things that went wrong
0: i'm uh, trying to remember who i talked to but they were they were a writer and they were saying the first time that they saw national lampoon they thought it was funny porn yeah
1: that sounds about right that sounds about right and then uh yeah I guess, I mean, you know, you Matty used to say, sex sells, and I'd say, yeah, well, heroin sells, but we're not in the heroin business, right, and then there'd be a long pause while he'd look at me thinking, what does that mean, exactly? <laughs> uh, and then I'd say, well, okay, so sex sells, tell me what you mean by sex, Maddie. like what, you know, sex on the magazine cover? you're not talking about people fornicating, what are you, and so you know what I mean, uh, tits, and I'd go and... Kids sell. Okay, I'm writing that down. Uh I do it was just it was uh was uh I think he was he was, I think he was mistaken and I was so great I was so gratified to be right about that and have not a job. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. You were an editor at National Lampoon and then the radio error came out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, brutal. Sorry, because I just read Bert's book. He has a, the story um, of um, that to, to, Tony Hendra and Michael O'Donoghue, were two of the editors, and they were having a blood feud. And Tony did this; was a producer director on this uh, musical essay uh, show called "I mean, Down at the Village Gate," and that made Michael say wait a second how come Tony you know they were like two sons like uh it was very biblical really and uh, you saw an Isaac or something but anyway then so Michael O'Donoghue insisted on having a radio show because otherwise no fair <clears throat> so he did he had a radio show and they built a radio studio up on the uh I don't know the uh, floor above our offices anyhow um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was done up to the nine, the, 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 it was a lot than the, uh, than the editorial, uh, floor of the magazine. And Michael was going to do an hour of radio every week. Well, that's hard. Hmm. You know, that's really hard. There's a reason why people don't do it. Um, and so, uh and michael then left and so bruce in in his book is writing about how all of a sudden michael was was uh, was gone and there was all this radio to do and uh that's what bruce said it was so much fun for him because he wrote a lot of really nifty stuff for the radio hour and it had the i guess for him it had that feeling that the the magazine had originally had which is I'm going to do exactly what I want and get paid for it, right? How often does that happen in your life? And uh, no one's going to say that joke is too weird, or that joke is too off-color, or that joke is too in, or that joke is too mean. They're just going to go with it because trust me, it's a funny joke. Well, that was so. When the when Johnny left the radio show, it became what are we going to do with it? And so all kinds of good things happened, including then uh, uh, Belushi coming in and bringing in all of Second City people, and it became. Uh, it became uh, much more uh, famous and successful. It went went down to half an hour, uh, which was also a big uh, relief because it meant that didn't have to fill an hour with uh, improv. And so,
0: yeah, and you guys pretended it was an hour show, but the radio stations
2: were were only playing right. a half hour.
1: Yeah, and the, uh, the joke was that uh, it happened because Seven Up became our unsponsor because that really did happen. uh, Andrew and I did, because Michael was gone and we were taking turns doing the radio show, uh, Tony and I did a thing called uh, Instant Day, and uh, it was pretty raw (laughs) about, uh, I mean, fantasizing we were about Nixon's impeachment, and I guess that uh, set uh, seven up people uh, bottlers in texas or something so they went through their support and the show went back to went to half an hour um yeah so, but you know brian mcconaughey had to take over the show because somebody had to and he wrote and we performed a musical comedy based on moby dick and it was brilliant i have to say it was a magnificent piece of work and it was on the air and then was this stuff was so ephemeral you know that whether it was good or bad it was it was it was gone the next minute as as soon as we got the uh the cut sign from bob tisler in the control room that was it i mean it was go back to work at whatever you were doing it was I can see why Bruce loved it a lot and uh and with uh, George Crow would do this fabulous Mr. Chatterbox stuff on the radio and that was always a delight and, and Chris guest was usually around to do a flash basketball mm. <laughs>
2: his,
1: his guy in space and it was Chris guest's birthday yesterday in case you wondered uh, uh, I know you were burning to know that um but someone sent me up letter uh, a note saying it was and i sent him a note saying hello i guess maybe 75 i guess um uh anyhow, he's, he, <laughs> god knows he's gone on to to uh to uh immortality uh, not just with the uh with the the, the, crazy, the crazy rock group but with his movies that are so like best in show is as good as a funny movie can be um, Chris is really a, a great talent, and it was always fun to work with him because he was such a great talent. He would, Chris would hum something. This is also it was a radio show. Chris would hum something, and I'd just go, "That's a song," and then run away and write it and come back and give it to Chris. So I remember one one day he was humming. I mean, he went, I wish he had a folk music voice that he would do, which is, I wish I was a (laughs) Negro. And I wrote the song, Well Intentioned Blues, that begins, I wish I was a Negro. I
4: wish I was a Negro, with lots of Negro souls. So I could stay true to my ethnic roots And still play rock and roll If I was a funky Negro Eating soul food barbecues I wouldn't have to sing the middle class liberal Well intentioned blues intention blues intention blues I wish I was an Indian A grown up soup hapus. When I get drunk on a beer and a half, I'd have a good excuse, I'd be a noble savage, wouldn't ever wear no shoes. And I wouldn't have to sing the middle-class liberal well-intentioned blues, intention blues, intention blues. I wish I was a wetback on a strike in a lettuce patch Or a slant-eyed peasant with Viet Cong stashed underneath my thatch I only ever cross a picket line to pay my union dues To keep on singing the middle-class liberal well-intentioned blues intention blues, intention blues I am not a Negro. Come on, not a red man nor a Mex. Join me, kids. I'm a member of the oppressing color. Language, age, and sex. I sympathize with the Arab cause. I feel for the put upon Jew. And I keep singing. Class liberal, humanitarian, meaningful dialogue, we are all responsible, well, intention blues, intention blues, intention blues.
1: He was farting around on the piano, playing, you know, uh, goofy, and singing. She was Virgo, I was Sag, and on that on that weirdness, uh, he and I wrote this fifteen minute art rock suite on the uh, on the Goodbye Pop album. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, he was. I just I'm um, in awe of him, that he could these ideas just seemed to come to him. He was kicked in the ass by god whereas i'd have to go away then and lick my pencil and try to think what to do with that idea
0: rock and roll heaven's another song that you guys collaborated on
1: yeah 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 that was michael adoni's idea no mm-hmm. i have to have to say that and chris Heston and i wrote a thing that was on the radio show and imus used it as a kind of a, a filler uh on his radio show all the time but I, find, I don't know whether chris knew that he wouldn't have been listening to a said so i suppose. but chris this is again he he wanted to to do a, a a grown-up blues song so he was singing every day every day i feel depressed <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we did the Psychology Today in blues, where the guy's saying, I'm experiencing uh, psychosomatic reactions to uh, environmental stress. And that was pretty funny, but it was Chris's joke, and I just had to go away and write it. Um, he's a spectacular human being.
0: And he was also in the cast of Wemmings.
1: was the reason that we were, were going to do that we're going to do I my mean, Chris could do James Taylor uh, and he could do um Dylan his Dylan was magnificent and so that was he was kind of the, the rock or the whatever around which Tony when he was casting the thing cast the thing uh it was Chris who told him the, that he'd been to Bard with this guy Chevy Chase and he was something of an asshole but he could play the drums and had a lot of teen appeal. And uh, then Tony went up to Chicago and saw Lucy. And uh, yeah, yeah. The always I was thinking about it the other night is a large, uh, interesting cast. And um, Chevy Chris and I are the survivors and I can't wait till Chevy dies because that was be a thing. <laughs> and then uh, Chris and I'll be the only survivor. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, So I went. Well, wish him a happy birthday. One of the things that happened on the road company of lemmings actually was that so, silly enough even the spoonful, was in the road company of lemmings, and on some on some occasion apparently he really took it into his head to kill cast. <laughs> he was, was going to brain him with a fender. Solid body. And I uh, had to be, you know, restrained by the rest of the cast because he was, And he might have done so. Zolman was, uh, was uh, didn't have a lot of uh, super eagle. And uh, I would, uh, whenever I'd see him, I'd say, good, you had a chance and you blew it. Uh, uh, Zoli, uh, you know, you <laughs> destroyed your karma. But anyhow, yeah, Chris one night during one, not Chris, Chevy, at one point during the show, he, in a blackout, he had to hand a to Alice Leighton, and he smashed her in the face with the microphone. And so she went, as it were, to her grave, as it were, with a scar on her nose from Chevy. And Don Belushi was introduced to the wonders of cocaine by Chevy. And so he has a lot to answer for. No wonder everyone loathes him. But he's not dead. I'll say that for him.
0: Well, he's a talented guy.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh for sure. But yeah, yeah. And it was he was really uh, yeah. He, he uh, on that first season of Saturday Night Live. It really he was the, the glue or the star or the whatever it is, which made Belushi crazy, but. Uh, that for sure, yeah. He's very uh he, he's he's be- very easygoing. He's sort of got a kind of Cary Grant thing uh, going, yeah, boom. But he's not i I never found him to be a very likable human hmm. being. Uh,
0: a couple of little sketches maybe if you could do uh, Doug Kenny, what what do you most remember about him? I mean, was
1: Doug was an exceptionally strange person. He was like nobody before or since. He was absolutely in and of the culture, whatever that means, and observing it from somewhere in space. I mean, it was extraordinary that he was because it the, the jokes he would make would make only a person who was soaked in it would know that that that, 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 that was that, that existed much less that you could make a joke about it hey, you know teenage commies from outer space was his thing that he was <laughs> threatening to do and the idea that 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 would be funny because it was combining the, the juvenile delinquent fears and the uh, science fiction fears and the fears of communism, whatever that meant, and the atomic bomb, and uh, at the same time rock and roll. I mean, almost excusing in his mind, I'm coming out funny. He was, uh, was, he was, he, uh, but he, and he was also a golden boy, right? He'd never missed. He'd never, every time he came to bat, he hit home run and, um, which was nice for him, but when he came to bat with Caddyshack, it was more of a resounding double off the left field wall. And, um, that really made him, made him, uh, sad. Uh, he just. Was it was the first time he hadn't hit a home run, and and I think it was it contributed to his unhappiness. That uh, how could he have you know? And because because it is actually not a very well made movie, and and uh, I think he you know, and the whole the golfer thing would have been exactly not catching uh, the bunny. So um, yeah. Anyway, but he was uh, he was a uh, one of a kind. And he, you know, he was just an um, all-American boy from from Cornfield, Indiana, or Illinois, wherever he came from. And he was a, like a bright young man, so he got to Harvard. And when he got to Harvard, George Trow took one look and went, uh, you're going to be on the Lampoon. And he was. And, uh, and he and Henry were a real one-two punch at the Lampoon. <clears throat> and so they when they graduated they thought let's not go to work let's just continue to do the harvard lampoon and they did but doug was utterly irresponsible and henry was the soul of responsibility and uh uh doug was uh, enjoyed very much experimenting with drugs and henry just occasionally had too many beers i mean they were an interesting couple, Abbott and Cussie and Yang kind of thing, and they really respected each other. It wasn't like either of them thought my way is the right way. So for the first four or five years, the, the Lampoon was so blessed to have those those two guys, and then they knew that they were snotty Harvard guys. They knew, it, and, and, and with George Tro, the three of them were snotty Harvard guys, and they said we need some street cred and george Trow saw michael O'Donoghue doing a happening down at the electric circus and brought him uptown a place michael didn't get often. and uh thought what it was you know it was it was magic that uh in in 1970 whatever the hell it was one the magic of these various vectors and then Tony Hancock was. If you had to be English if you wanted to do humor in those days, and Tony was uh, was you know familiar with uh, the Monty Pie Bombs. I mean, he'd gone to school with them, so he you know that was another thing that was part of the mix uh, that 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 worked. Uh, so yeah, it was yeah. You know, there were giants in those days,
0: and Brian McConaughey.
1: Oh, I. Just called me the other day, and once a year, Brian calls me and we pick up where we left off. He, uh, 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 I I told you that American Bystander just did a whole issue Mm -hmm. of Brian, and uh, and it reminded one of what a a, a silly, generous guy he wasn't back to Lampoon terribly long, uh, because he and he went. He went off to Saturday Night Live, and then he went to SCTV, and he he really covered, you know, touched all the bases, Uh, went out to California and worked with M.K. Brown, which fills me with envy. Um, But he, he, um, and then, you know, he wanted this magazine, The Bystander, and now it kind of exists, which is is nice for him. But he... uh, McCall in his in his uh, memoir says that Brian, when he met him, was working on a a, an idea, a comedy idea about walnut farmers. And uh, he said the last time he talked to Brian, he was still working on that. There was something in that walnut farmer joke. And you think, well, that's quite unique, isn't it? That's an unusual person.
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he was. We did the, uh, the after showing, a uh, question and answer thing after the Lampoon documentary came out, which is a, a strange thing to, to do because of course you're narcissistic enough to want to do it, and then once you're doing it, you're just filled with shame and self loathing. Anyhow, Brian and I did one of those, and it it got a little. What uh, I mean, people were asking, you know questions that we didn't care and then brian, somebody asked him something about his comedy blah 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 or his satire or whatever some academic question and brian says you know i was thinking suppose you had a little restaurant by the roadside with was curt- with with cafe curtains and but the motorcycle gang kept coming to it and so you were not getting your the customers you wanted I think a great idea would be to hang a boy and totally in our mm. I guess that's what put put him in mind of the Bologna. But and I think well I think he's got uh, whatever he, whatever the disease is. He said to me, it doesn't kill you, but you die with it. So I guess that may be the dread Parkinson's. I don't know, but he's, he's still you know. Up and at Adam, he's not bedridden. Adam has something even more uh, paralyzing in his uh, horse to combat entirely. But uh, yeah. I don't know that for sure. Um, and we, you know, uh, we're old guys. We <laughs> really <laughs> <laughs> we get on the phone with each other and talk symptoms. Yeah. You know? we talk prostate. You know? What about yours? No, it's gone years ago. Really
0: it's just amazing that there's no jews in this conversation but you're complaining about your uh your medical mal-
2: maladies
1: yes i know i know well at a certain age everyone's jewish i think I, so. I, <laughs> just, so no getting no getting around because you think about all you get the more you think about food because sex is out of the question <laughs> so there's a lot of you know that really schmucks. You know where they make a nice schmacher, and uh, yeah, that's a, that's old guys. And then the uh, exactly. uh Paul Jacobs, who was also who was the the musician on all of the mm. on the stuff we did for years. Paul had a was out playing tennis and had some kind of stroke. Mm. And so now he doesn't know who he is or where he is. Or when he's he's up and around and he can play music, but he's as, doesn't remember his own kids. Like who is that again? <laughs> but uh, before he, you know, God is not mocked. Before he had this hideous accident, he, he told me a joke, which is. There's three old Jewish guys in Florida, the usual setup. And one of them says, "You know what I would I would do? I would love to have just one more actual piss, not the little dribble, 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 but you know, the real stream like a fire hose. But no, it's too... the other guy says, Sorry. "My thing is, I would like to have one decent shit, not the little rabbit stuff coming out and oh, And I just I would like. And the third guy says, "I'm what am I written to I wake up in the morning, I have a princess like a fountain. A couple of minutes later, I took a huge ship like a shawasa. Then, maybe an hour after that, I get out
2: of bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good joke. It's a good joke, isn't it?
1: It's a good joke. Uh, but that's uh, Paul Jacob's joke. So, uh, yeah, we it's just, it's such a, well, God. Either I hope you it happens to you, or I hope it doesn't, depending on your your. Uh, depending on your constitution, but it's funny to be uh, to realize that these we we all thought thought of ourselves as being you know flaming youth, and um, and now we're we're you know, <laughs> it's walkers and uh, and uh, and uh, being a little uh, a little a little slow on the uptake,
0: hmm. but
1: yeah yeah, it was worth it though. It's better than being in the other place. Yes. Oh, yeah. As far as we know, I <laughs> mean, yeah, that, uh, that's the other place. Uh, 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 Christopher Plummer just expired, as you probably yes. know. And uh, his, I, in 1957, that's a long time ago, I was a little Canadian teen, and I saw Christopher Plummer's Hamlet at, uh, at the Stratford Festival. And it was, oh yeah, that was a big moment in my life. I think is, definitely, uh, we're in a, a different, uh, different after that. The, the universe did a little shift, and uh, I was also. Then I went to the bookstore at the uh, at the festival. The uh, theater and and bought my uh, first copy of waiting for Godot. so after that very not very much has happened to me that was pretty much it that that mm-hmm. summer my 17th summer but then we draw the curtain and i've seen i saw Plummer do uh royal to the sun and i saw him do some other stuff on broadway but and i was like you he's a fellow montreal <laughs> we're so similar but uh, time goes by, and I'm summoned in by Harvey Weinstein, the worst person in the world, probably, uh, because he's bought a French science fiction movie, um, an, uh, an animated French science fiction movie, which in, to release as a you know whatever movie, and um, he's got Isaac Asimov to do the uh, translation from the French screenplay and uh because that's classy right and of course Isaac. i don't know whether he reads french or anything but um the, 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 there was no way that the the screenplay went anywhere near what was on screen right yeah. that's a little difficult there all of a sudden you've got this so uh my my uh job was to uh send in the uh where the, the voiceovers were being done and rewrite them against the uh, lip movements or whatever on screen in that you know the time that there was to say what you ever had to say uh, which was pretty pretty because I mean, a lot of really nifty actors and actresses came in to do these voiceovers and one of them was Christopher Plummer and uh I didn't know what to do i didn't i i thought do i say to you hey do you remember nineteen fifty seven i i i didn't do that, but he was very he was you know enormously professional at and he, he had most of the stuff to do, so I was um I was uh, working with him, uh, to, you know, but and he was patient and he was very, uh, very uh, a grown-up guy. But it was either at either end of his career, I, I uh, caught him at his finest, and uh, and Harvey was uh, just, uh, just disgusting. Uh, each with his hands, you know. He's a barbarian. And uh, and uh, he just kept interrupting things to phone a, a jewelry store and order more jewelry for his wife. But flamboyantly in front of us, if you know what I mean. Right. And then he'd go back to shoving some food down his face it was a It was a, a gossipy Harvey story. And he made a movie called, uh, what was it called? Not it was something Restoration. And it was a, a, a wide interest in Harvey. I think he thought it was classy. But anyhow, he, and uh, Downey Jr. was playing, was the lead. And the movie was, ended up being a bomb, but at a certain point Harvey and uh, Downey Jr. could not believe that he was actually in the presence of some of the idiots. Jabba the Hutt. But uh, Harvey calls him up and says, we need you to come to London and do some uh, revoicing. And Junior, Junior said, uh, "Okay, for a million bucks." And Harvey, you know, slammed on down and called back saying, "Okay, for a million bucks." And uh, so then there was—it was a private jet that was sent out to pick up uh, Robert and fly him to New York and then to uh, to uh, London. And when uh, in New York, the private jets went. And Harvey gets on the plane with a huge, like Kentucky Fried Chicken, event, <laughs> right? and begins to, uh, as they taxi down the runway. Begins stuffing food into his mouth, and Bob is thinking, "Was a million enough?"
0: <laughs> I know a picture of another guy eating Kentucky Fried Chicken on a private plane.
1: Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Most of them also very much ladies' men. <laughs> <laughs> And you think about it, but now listen. uh, uh, Bob Downey's dad is a great Robert Downey, uh, Prince, and he is unwell. And I, I, I met him late in both our lives. Because uh, then he had made Putney Slope and and Shaked Elbows and the, uh, 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 Greaser's Palace. Good years of popping in on him every uh, a week or so, or every whenever I could, to just sit there and and, and go admiration admiration,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like a like a little creepy girl.
0: Did you ever work with his with his uh, half brother, Jim Downey?
1: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we 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 were we, he and I tried to sell a uh, sell an impeachment uh, edition of a magazine, and uh, it was fun working with him, but it didn't fly. But he's a funny guy. He and I are uh, Facebook buddies.
0: Jim Downey is on Facebook.
1: Yeah.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: Okay. So, that. I know. I know. It's weird, but there it is. Uh. Yes. Yeah three <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well he, you can't talk to him, he's a uh, go guy he's dad. I don't believe on it and it was a thing it was a thing that was an event, certainly before the played, and it was various people were summoned for some reason, I don't know what it was, and it was, uh, we showed up, or I showed up, and, and Brian showed up, and, uh, but as as I was leaving, because, you know, it was getting to be four o'clock in the afternoon, and that time, <laughs> as I was leaving, this guy came in. Uh, And it was one of those lobbies where the doors were banged into it. It It's just a cheesy design, so we had to work around each other for him to get in and me to get out. And I was on the street before I realized it was Sam
2: Gross.
1: Mm. So um, he's—he's the idea that Sam is still walking around. Is, uh, he's, uh, you know, I guess everyone knows that what uh, that he's the uh, that he's the genius of them all. Which, uh, nobody, nobody could do what he does on a regular basis. And, uh, and, and he, yeah. his relationship with Maddie Simmons was not a happy one. Sam Gross was, you know, was, was a professional, and uh, he's gonna be like. Talked to like he was some, you know, like he was a lucky kid to get his drawings in Maddie's magazine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, I do this for a living. Um, so now I, I don't think, uh, that, that, uh, there are many of the, 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 the comics artists in the Lampoon, the one who did the back pages there, I don't think a lot of them ever, uh, showed up. They just sent their stuff in, so there was no. They didn't have to deal with the Michigas uh, of uh, the office. But uh, because he was a, you know, a, a one-panel cartoonist, Sam Gross would show up every week with a portfolio, and Brian would he'd show them to Brian. Brian was the cartoonist, and uh, uh, then he'd uh, uh, Maddie would come out and say he wanted to use sam's drawings on a poster for nothing hmm. <laughs> sam would lose his shit completely so they were amusing moments
0: a um, uh, couple of people i'll be talking to in a couple of weeks uh, that you worked with al jean yeah,
1: yeah. you know uh, al jean and, and and mike reese were harbored hotshots. And it was this uh, at a certain point, I think I won an argument. Anyhow, the, the Lamplin, Maddie was out in California, so he wasn't there screaming, put sex on the cover all the time. And Julian Weber uh was the publisher briefly and julian's idea was to get indeed get some young blood but young blood of the kind that had been the original young blood so that would be a pair of comedy writers out of the lampoon which seemed like a good idea at the time and so mike and al showed up uh at uh and I, got, was, and not, I think Jerry Sussman was functioning as editor yeah. at the time, but anyhow, they showed up and they were very funny and agreeable and within a month had gone out west to do The Simpsons. So um, they were, you know, it, it was clever to think they might be the guys. But the, 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 that ship had sailed, you know. There was, if you were a couple of geniuses just at the Harvard Lampoon, there was better things to do than, uh, than uh, uh, just sit around a shabby office in New York and make tick jokes.
0: <laughs> he actually uh, was 16 when he went to Harvard Elgene. Is that right? Yeah, he was 20 when he worked at the Lampoon. Cause he That's graduated- crazy.
1: I mean, I know they, the two of them look like high school students. When they arrived, uh, it was at one of those moments where you think, wait a second, uh, (laughs) I didn't know I was this old, because you guys look as young as baseball players. But uh, Because that's a thing that happens, that baseball players get younger every year. Oh, yeah, this is,
0: last year was the first year I was older than anybody in Major League Baseball.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, um, yeah, that's not a good feeling, really, because it makes you realize your chances of actually being drafted. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
1: I swim to none now.
0: And uh, Fred Graver.
1: Ah, yeah. I don't know what... Fred Graver's an entrepreneur of some kind now.
0: Yeah, he said he would talk to me when his business is up and running.
1: Yeah. Well, he... uh, 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 Jerry Sussman, the aforementioned, had written a a book because Jerry was very prolific and he had written i don't even know what the goddamn book was that's awful uh, He'd written a, a funny book and his editor on the funny book he said was a funny guy and uh so uh, i accompanied jerry to his editor's friend's office and Fred was uh, like a kid who was a, a, a young editor at some. Was it St. Martin's, no it wasn't, it was a, anyhow at some publishing house and at that very moment uh Ted I guess yeah there was anyhow there's a big uh migration away an exodus from the editorial department so Jerry offered Fred the job right away uh, and I guess that Fred was for, you know, eager to no longer be a small fish at a at a, a small publishing company. So he uh, he moved he moved into his uh, into the magazine pretty fast, and he was very eager. He was, God knows, he was eager. And Ted Mann used to call him the crazy laughter bear <laughs> because Ted was vicious to everyone, including <clears throat> including uh, himself but he had a crazy laughter uh, but anyhow uh, f- uh, Fred went off to Letterman I think mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at the time when he, either he was uh, maybe let everyone go or it was time to go and uh, he went to Letterman with Ken Curran who was his sort of writing partner
0: yeah who was the voice of the dog on Married With Children
1: yeah and then who married that woman who did the uh, the english girl who smokes cigarettes and keeps him bridge jones he, he married a woman who wrote the bridges jones book oh i didn't know that and then he died
2: so, yeah i know that
1: yeah anyhow yeah yeah but they they went to Letterman together and uh and uh, but like ted's writing partner ted Mann's writing partner was. uh a kid, Scott. He was. He was from Arizona. Uh, he was Ted, uh, Todd, Carroll, and uh, the two went to California to be writing team, and they did do a movie that never got released. I and mean, the movie was Robert that Never made the uh, made the screen, but um, it was again. It was these people really worked in twos. Ted wrote his headline was not you don't get a fucking these products are all top rated which i just have to say that sentence to myself and i'll laugh for a couple of minutes Fear not you'll get a fucking <laughs> anyway ted um is now writing uh one of those big uh, television shows about espionage or something. and he wrote uh, tombstone and uh with the Deadwood, rather, no. and he's uh, he's really a brilliant uh, writer of dialogue, um, but he's fallen for the old on mm. So uh, I, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, I was out in California with, uh, visiting my son, and Chris and I had lunch with Ted, and he started talking about Barry Soto. And hauling weird shit out of a bag for us to read and stuff, and I thought, oh, come on, that's not right. Thing about Teddy, monstrously intelligent, but he dropped out of grade school. I think I don't believe he went to high school, Uh, and so he he would—he was an auto dictat. I guess that's the word. um, He—it was always amazing that he would, uh, you know, Ted show up and say he's learning to fly. You go, really uh okay and so he did he learned to fly i don't think he ever flew but he learned to fly a plane and then he would he was always uh uh, uh i don't know exploring things exploring things and i guess he just banged into into q and it stuck it could have been something else it could have been uh, uh existential you know what i mean he just said it was a, it was a bummer <laughs> Chris Kelly and I are sitting there in this restaurant in uh, in uh, Los Angeles, going, Jesus in Christ, Lord, how do we get out of here? But this guy telling us about how you know Hillary Clinton drinks baby's blood and stuff. And, Ted, hello, Ted. <laughs> do not you'll get a fucking Ted, right?
0: <laughs> Disco B from outer space. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Anyhow, I don't know if I. Disco uh, Weaver from Outer Space was, uh, of course, a catastrophe, but it was sort of fun. But the, I may mean, have told you this, Randy Kennedy, who was, the, for many years, the guy who covered the, uh, art and culture for the New York Times, um, uh, was telling me one evening, because he, my oldest daughter worked at the Times for a while and became friends with Randy. Anyhow, Randy was telling me, I said, how did you get out if you were born in a gas station crossroads in Nowheresville, Texas to, you know, fundamentalist evangelical weirdos. How come you're now covering art for the newspaper of record? And he said, well, you know, one more one day, one day he went downstairs after his parents were in bed and turned on the television. And he said and he saw this beaver <laughs> dancing around on the Brooklyn Bridge hmm. and said, I, I gotta get out of here. I gotta go where that happens. And uh, I thought, well, oh, good, this, our lives were not in vain. Mm. <laughs> we got this brilliant young man out of the shitlands and uh, up where up he belongs. So, but that's the only uh, good thought I've ever had about the Disco Beaver from Outer Space. I mean, it was fun working on, but God, what a catastrophe. And, uh, and yep. a lot of really talented people we were involved josh white is a good director and but it just i don't know i
2: don't know it's a cult classic
1: though oh yeah i'm sure and the original cut when it isn't like we wrote it so that every uh, uh sketch came seamlessly out of the previous sketch there were no punchlines it was like uh, python-esque i think that you would just go from the camera would pan and uh, the next sketch would be taking place next door or whatever we never went that 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 boom in it that was not we decided we wouldn't do that and uh when we finished it and sent it to hbo and then they aired it and we went what what because they went for some kind of like channel switching Mm -hmm devices and it was just, what? No? Oh God. And it was not that it might it would have been the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it was better than the uh than the, the product that we saw. for years after that, if I ever ran into Michael Fuchs, he would uh, point at me and go, Disco Beaver." <laughs> <It was like, laughs> oh yeah, that was funny, Michael. Um yeah. You
2: worked
0: on Steve Martin all commercials?
1: William Morris, I think, or some, uh, some, you know, one of those people connected. Maybe it was him. Anyway, All of a sudden, I was invited. Uh, my agent, uh, William Morris, said uh, a, an offer to go out there and do this, and that was okay with me. Uh, I was, I was, uh, I, you know, I was hungry, and um, but of course, my problem with Los Angeles is that I don't drive so um i pretty much uh but anyway I uh, that's why i never even thought about living there because was, anyway but it was fun it was great fun and the, uh the, the whole writing staff was very much they were uh, you know they had done airplane and stuff they were amazing um but they were, were were, they all knew each other. Duh. They were all in the Los Angeles writing TV specials and funny movies game, and I was this you know goof Canadian who didn't drive. So um, I, um, I enjoyed everything about the project and, and I don't know if anything I wrote made the, the cut. I mean, I don't remember. But one night I was sort of sitting around trying desperately to write something in the offices and Steve Martin himself came in and I got to talk to him for 20 minutes. And I thought, oh, no, this happened to me in my little life. I got to talk to Steve Martin for 20 minutes. And uh, sometimes we went to his house to, to have writers meetings and stuff. And he had this strange house in strange to me house in Beverly Hills that was carpeted. The gray carpet ran up the walls. Mm. All right, like a, like an art gallery. And it was a giant double-sized refrigerator that had nothing in it but Perrier. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm this is a whole other culture, I have to get back to Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, but anyhow, yeah. And and so it did. I think it won a lighter skill award or something, right? And it was um, like so,
0: so, Pee Wee Herman's part. first. It was mm-hmm. also Pee Wee Herman's first. Uh, he was in the cast.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then, well, you know, Pee-wee, uh, he was really, he could do a lot of stuff. But when he got to audition up at uh, Saturday Night Live, everyone just shouted at him, you know, get a little Peewee. And so he wasn't, I don't think Peely was going to make it with Gene Domanian. So he didn't get a uh, cast, and that would have been a blessing if he had the cast that year.
0: Were you and, there when Jim Carrey auditioned?
1: Uh, no. Okay. I was there when when uh, uh, Gilbert Godfrey auditioned. And Gilbert is hilarious, but he is not an ensemble player. No. You know what I mean? That's what? What's he going to do? Scream. I mean, it's funny. But suppose you've a sketch about a barbershop. What's he going to do in the barbershop sketch to scream? Right. It was because, you know, uh, Dominion didn't know how to. Ge- she didn't understand what the very great stand-up, you know. I've worked with uh, Gilbert off and on uh, subsequently, and I think he's a, just a really nice guy.
2: Mm.
1: But, uh, and, and good at what he does, heaven knows. He was the one who did the aristocrats joke before. Oh, yeah. Him. So for that, he goes immediately to comedy heaven, right? But, uh, uh, yeah, and he did a... Uh, one of the kids' shows that I wrote, he played uh, Jack Frost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jack, uh, uh, I guess it was not and Friends. But anyhow, uh, he's okay. But he was not going to be part of an ensemble group because, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, anyhow, it was a motley crew that she that she blew. Was, she hired a guy called, I can't. It's had a weird weird name. and his wife had written my boy lollipop so that was his kind of. oh ferris name. butler yeah and i still don't know what the fuck that was about uh but he got a sketch on i think the first show called leather weather where the weatherman was dressed there in in, in M costumes or something it was uh, i was just i don't am i well, was in my
0: mind. Yeah, that was in the second episode uh, that was malcolm mcdowell
1: yeah and i couldn't understand who on god's earth would think that was funny and then i thought well maybe i'm maybe i'm <laughs> maybe i'm missing a step how what's funny about that Tell who else was was involved in that uh there was a Charlie rocket who said "fuck" on the air which was not wise and uh, Danny Dillon, who really is a very, very, very capable hmm. uh, actress and a funny person, but
3: Gail Mathias, no is to a, play
1: with. Gail
0: Mathias is a funny person. Yep. That's right.
1: But it didn't, it just was, it was just, it went from bad to worse because it's that thing of, if you don't know how to do something, that's okay. And, and there's a certain amount of fake attempt to make it, of course, but uh, you got it when it comes right down to it you gotta have some
0: idea right. and uh her idea was no one goes home larry Arnstein. he was telling yeah. me that his wife was like after the first week his wife was like we can't do this you just had a child and you can't be there 18 hours a day or whatever right and no, they, no,
1: I at the time so i couldn't be there 18 hours a day and what gene didn't understand is that people were there 18 hours a day under uh the previous uh, because they were highest heights on cocaine and because they were competing desperately for one's love but they weren't very hours a day doesn't create comedy no that's not you know she misunderstood the form for the content she would always keep you waiting if she'd say see me at three and you'd stand outside her office until six
0: but so that was a Lorne move
1: yeah <laughs> the entire, it was it was striking she knew she knew what Lorne... she or she knew that was what Lauren did
0: right that's what she she brought his structure and his um way of doing things but not the actual comedy skills or knowledge of what comedy is
1: that's right so it was pretty pretty uh was, was interesting except I, I really couldn't be there uh 24 7. i mean really, uh the first time around saturday saturday night live well, back in in uh, 1975 and 76 um, some of us, like Michael O'Donohue and Ambeets, and uh, made the jump over to uh, to S- and, and uh, uh, to, but uh, w- whether I could have, I couldn't because I had uh, kids, and uh, my kids were I was they weren't we weren't living together, so I had to see them on weekends, right. and I wasn't about to give that up to. um, to for anything so I couldn't possibly work on Saturday Night Live and uh, whether I would have or could have or whatever I, I couldn't uh, and, and the second time around then I thought well I'm a grown up now and uh, I can handle this but uh, I, so I put up a big photograph of the house I lived in in my office um, to point out to Jean when she'd come in and say you know why weren't you here last night I'd point to this <laughs> that's where I live that's my house and um, she would
0: shake her head and walk away she had a meeting I was told um about whether or not to book the cast of Pirates of Penzance as a musical guest yeah why sure you would is. have to have a meeting with the writers of a comedy show to discuss the booking of the musical guest I have no uh, idea
1: no no now Neil would have that would have been a Neil Levy story I think that's uh, yeah because uh, you Neil know, had to do with it. She had been a booker. That's the weirdest thing about right. it. You would think of one things she actually knew how to do. But, yeah, well, I don't know. Well, the, they um, had good
0: musical guests that season.
1: Yes. Yes, yes. She was quite capable of booking, uh, I think, uh, she, uh, the, the coconuts, I think. was on. Kid Creole
0: and the coconuts. And the second one was Captain Beefart.
1: Right. Ben, I mean, I don't know what she thought about that, because he is, like, a, a highly unusual.
0: <laughs> that was yeah. Neil Levy. That was Neil Levy.
1: Yeah. We uh, were just, I mean, everyone's the Gene Demenian stories, but the one that I like about my experience is uh, Mitchell Kriegman and I were to or a sort of assigned or undertook to do the thing like when the sketch ends and the camera pans up to the audience, uh, you know, it was written underneath it was let the kettle on at home or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever's up with interstitials. And um, uh, Mitchell and I had this idea which is what was did that you would cut to whatever you cut to but the chiron would be uh, great punchlines of the world number 333 right hey lady your sign fell down no. or i mean there were they were all to be the punchlines of the most you know horrible filth jokes but if you didn't know you would be puzzled, and if you knew, you'd laugh your ass off, right? Because you can't say that on television. Well, you can if you just give the punchline. Anyway, we were trying to show this to her, and she said to me, she said, well, I don't understand what... And I said, no, those are the punchlines to the uh, uh, smut jokes that every kid and, and knows. And she went, she, so are they old all jokes? And I went I go, yeah. And she goes, I want new jokes. Anyway, that was, that was, a, did I want new jokes and we're really in trouble here.
2: Mm.
1: I think we're in big the, trouble. Uh, I think I told you last time that we, we, so we started writing sketches and every one of them we put Oedipus in because then if the table reads, you would say Oedipus and we'd yeah. fucking fall out. But there's a waste of time. Was, was a, it also had the thing that I was in television before, cable. There was a thing where you'd write the guy's a bum, and you'd get a note from standards and practices saying we can't use the word bum. And you'd think, uh, come on, it you know, we're not calling someone someone's rear end. I'm saying he's like a hobo. And they'd come back, and still, people I think you're referring to someone's center, and you are go, Jesus. And you'd spend a whole week. Instead of just playing hobo, it's, someone got to say tits on television. Oh, wow! Fantastic. There goes censorship. It was it was a lot of that. A lot of uh, a lot of it, and and that that's a waste of time. Mm. It, it, now that you were, you know if the statue, sketch win, you thought was really important politically or something and they were cutting it because they didn't like politics so i could see the fight there but you know having a big fight to say moves i don't know Man. really
0: okay okay well thank you very much for
2: talking to me thank you very much for talking to me well, it was a pleasure